Yes, that was Johnny Mercer's immortal Moon River. It's an American standard. It's the kind of thing you can hear on commercial radio from time to time. Is it so bad that we play it here at KDVS? In my opinion, it is not. Of course, I hasten to add that that opinion, like all the ones you're going to hear on this program today or any other day, do not necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And definitely does not necessarily reflect the opinion of some of my fellow DJs here at the station. By the way, I love you guys and the work you all do. All right. Our quote of the day, believe it or not, comes from Donald Trump. Trump apparently recently took aim at former Texas Governor Rick Perry, one of his rivals for the GOP nomination, and said, quote, he put on glasses so people think he's smart. People can see through the glasses. Our quote of the day comes from Daniel Borston and may actually apply to the Donald. Said Borston, in paraphrase of Shakespeare, some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some hire public relations officers. In the wake of Sam Nunberg, an advisor to the Trump campaign, getting fired over some racially charged Facebook posts, some wag, I think it was John Stewart, commented, this is shocking, isn't it? That Donald Trump actually has a campaign advisor? And yes, tonight apparently marks the last show for Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. I was definitely not a regular viewer and did not actually see very many of the programs, but what I did see I liked. John did a great job, and we wish him well in the future. This might be a good time to also mention the passing of Cosmo Garvin from the pages of the Sacramento News and Review. We will miss Cosmo's strong work in his Bites column. He's done some great stuff over the years. He's been on our show Many times, and we hope to bring him on again next week to talk about uh, uh, what he's got planned for the future. Our anecdote for today's program concerns Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, in case you don't know, is a San Francisco poet and co-founder of City Lights Bookshop and Publishing House. He was one of the original members of the Beat Movement and claims he was always one of the group's squarer members, largely refraining from the drug experiments of his peers. Said Ferlinghetti, somebody had to mind the shop. In 1955, he offered to publish Allen Ginsberg's sexually graphic poem, Howl, then chose a press in Britain to produce it. When copies arrived in the U.S., Ferlinghetti was charged with obscenity. He said, I wasn't worried. I was young and foolish. I figured I'd get a lot of reading done in jail. A municipal judge's 1957 decision to dismiss the charge paved the way for the end of literary censorship in America. Writing in sfgate.com, Jonah Raskin said, Not all the Beats run-ins with the law ended in such clear triumphs. In I Greet You at the Beginning of a Great Career, which is City Lights' new collection of letters between Ferlinghetti and Allen Ginsberg, it reveals that in 1979, poet Gregory Corso was caught stealing money from the store's register. After a witness called police, Ferlinghetti tipped Corso off, advising him to leave town. We never called the police on any thief, said Ferlinghetti. Sometimes we humiliated thieves by pulling their pants down in the store, which does sound like an interesting approach, wouldn't you say? They do do things differently in San Francisco. It's pointed out that Corso the poet didn't get off scot-free. 
Ferling Getty said, we took the amount of money he stole from us, from his royalties. I think that was very Buddhist of us. And yes, we are as shocked as you are to find out that poets can sometimes also be thieves. We call upon Dr. Andy Jones now for an explanation of this phenomenon. Dr. Andy, if you're listening, give us a call. All right, our good news item for today's program is that the top federal prosecutor in San Francisco has resigned. U.S. Attorney Melinda Hagg is now stepping down. She handled criminal cases against State Senator Leland Yee, for which we give her an attaboy. And by the way, our good news addendum item for today's program is that the federal appeals court last week dismissed a legal challenge to to a California law banning the sale, distribution, and possession of shark fins for the Chinese delicacy of shark fin soup. Senator Leland Yee was one of the main fighters in favor of continuing shark fin soup being served to you. This adds to our satisfaction that they are throwing the book at him. But uh, we're less proud of Melinda Hag for her work against Barry Bonds. That was not a successful prosecution. He was charged with lying to a federal grand jury when he, de- when he denied ever knowingly taking steroids or other performance-enhancing drugs. The perjury case was hampered by the refusal of Bond's former trainer to testify against him and by prosecutors' failure to provide jurors with the transcripts of a recording of Greg Anderson, the trainer, discussing drug injections. By the way, a federal appeals court threw out the conviction of Barry Bonds and the case ended last week when the Justice Department decided against further appeals. But the reason we consider Melinda Hagg stepping down to be good news involves another disputed issue. Federal actions against medical marijuana suppliers. Despite the Obama administration's stated policy of deferring to state medical marijuana laws, as reported by Radio Parallax and others, Hag and California's three other top federal prosecutors announced a crackdown on pot dispensaries in 2011, saying they would threaten landlords with prosecution unless they evicted tenants who were supplying cannabis in violation of federal law. And in fact, thanks to this star chamber action by California's four top federal prosecutors, in contravention of the stated policy of the President of the United States, hundreds of dispensaries in California were forced to shut down, including quite a few here in the greater Sacramento area. We wish her well in an alternate career. All right, we got a bunch of stats for today. Let's let's, let's plow through those, starting with the fact that the University of California has given Linda Katehi and others 3% raises. Katehi will now annually take home $424,000. Our second stat of the day is that the graduating class of 2015 is the most indebted in history, owing a total of $56 billion in student loans. About 71% of college students graduating this year took out loans at an average of $35,000 each. In 1996, just 58% of students took out loans, owing less than $20,000 each at graduation. Stat number three of the day is that Volkswagen surpassed Toyota as the world's largest automaker by sales in the first half of 2015. The German company sold 5.04 million vehicles to Toyota's 5.02 million, beating its own goal of seizing the number one global spot by 2018. General Motors, once by far the world's biggest automaker, is now in third place. By the way, we want to highly recommend a copy of This American Life, which dealt with uh, the issue of the Japanese and American automakers getting together 
in the plant that was in Fremont making uh, Toyotas with the help of GM. I did not realize until I heard that broadcast that the Chevy truck plant in Fremont was considered hands down the worst in all of the automobile manufacturing plants in America, at least for General Motors. Stat number four, and this is a grim one, at least 235 people have died in 75 mass shootings since the Sandy Hook massacre of 20 school children and six adults in December 2012. This is a terrible statistic, although we're not sure about why it is the Sacramento News and Review got its knickers in a knot over the fact that there are more concealed weapons permits issued in Sacramento than in other places in the state. The viewpoint in the News and Review seemed to be that this is contributing to all of this gun violence or that it's just crazy. And, you know, I, frankly, I cannot agree on either account. And our final series of stats for the day is that there's a growing gap between the beliefs held by scientists and the general public. According to the WashingtonPost.com, around 86% of U.S. scientists think parents should be required to vaccinate their kids. This compares with just 68% of the public. 87% of scientists say that climate change is caused by human activity compared with 50% of the public. 90% of scientists say humans have evolved over time. Only 65% of the public agrees. I guess 35% of the public just finds the idea of humans evolving just too preposterous as compared to, say, snakes that talk, and that human females were invented by plucking a rib out of a man and doing a abracadabra thing. Evidently, they find that plausible. All right, I think it's time we moved into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Sarah Palin. After GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump rewarded the former Alaska governor for her support by suggesting that she'd have a place in a Trump administration. Said the Donald, she really is somebody that knows what's happening. And yes, here at Radio Parallax, we welcome your input as to what post in the Trump administration you think that Sarah Palin might be best suited for. Please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for people who understand that humans actually have evolved over time. At least that's how I would categorize this. The item is that according to a poll by the Public Religion Research Institute, one in four Americans agrees with this statement. God plays a role in determining which team wins a sporting event. We at Radio Parallax have expressed open skepticism that, for example, the ring of players praying on the football field as they're lining up to kick a field goal actually influences the Almighty as to whether he's going to let it split the uprights or go awry. I think it's fair to say that if the Almighty is going to respond to prayer over things like field goals, that we have indeed reduced him to the level of a cosmic bellboy. And it was an ugly week last week for the game of golf with the news that greenkeepers at a Norwegian golf course have, have reported finding human poo inside the cups on several of the greens. 
said a club spokesman. Our idea is that it could be someone who, for unknown reasons, hates the game of golf. And it was both a bad and ugly week last week for, well, take your pick, either Mexico or lovers of cilantro, with the news that the U.S. this week has banned the importation of cilantro from several farms in the Mexican state of Puebla because of repeated contamination with the feces-borne cyclospora parasite. At least eight fields inspected by U.S. and Mexican regulators were found to have no bathrooms at all for farm workers or else rudimentary facilities that lacked soap and water. Inspectors saw human feces and toilet paper in the fields among the plants. The FDA says that these herbs grown in Mexican, on Mexican farms are probably to blame for hundreds of cases of cyclosporiasis, a stomach illness that causes vomiting and diarrhea in the U.S. over the past few years. I think we'll close with two items regarding drones that can be good, bad, or just plain ugly, depending on how you want to look at them. The first item is that the Rio State in Brazil has begun deploying drones to seek out farms or construction sites that may be using slave labor. That's what they're saying. Brazil abolished slavery in 1888, which was big of them, but hundreds of thousands of men and women are still believed to be working there as forced or indentured laborers. Said Bruno Barcas Lopez of Rio's labor ministry, drones will be useful out in the country in the case of farms that are hard to reach by road, for example. Yes, the knuckleheads that want to have drones flying all over us everywhere (laughs) believe it may help end human slavery. That's how they're marketing it. And from the pages of New Scientist magazine, we have this. Last week, feedback. That's the section at the end of the magazine that uh, is basically letters from the viewers. Asked readers recently for THISPS, acronym for Truly Horrible Ideas for Saving the Planet. Little did we know, said the magazine, how soon our request would be fulfilled. Enter the Whopper Dropper. The latest efforts of the technological wonderkins of Silicon Valley to address the inequality that plagues San Francisco. In this occasion, filmmakers felt they could make a heartwarming viral video by delivering hamburgers to destitute city dwellers using a $1,500 drone. Noted the magazine, unsurprisingly, many viewers were left incensed rather than heartwarmed by long-distance footage of cheap burgers being cast at the feet of impoverished citizens by a flying robot, a delivery mechanism suggestive of a fear that poverty might be contagious. We would like to refer to the cover story in The Economist magazine about Silicon Valley last week. The cover story was titled, Empire of the Geeks, and What Could Wreck It? Note in the magazine, a place named for its skill in making silicon-packed semiconductors is transforming how firms make decisions, people make friends, and protesters make a fuss. Startups touch more people more quickly than ever before. Airbnb, a seven-year-old firm that helps people turn their homes into hotels, operates in 34,000 towns and cities around the world. On-the-demand firms like Uber are changing what it means to be an employee. Just as the big platforms like Google, Facebook, and Apple benefit from network effects because each new user makes the service more valuable for all the others, so the Valley's success as a venue to launch, fund, staff, and sell a, technolo- and sell a technology firm is feeding on itself. As a result, American capitalism has a new hub in the West, 
Wall Street used to be the place to seek fortunes and make deals. Now, it is increasingly the valley. The area's tech companies are worth over $3 trillion. Last year, one in five American business school graduates piled into tech. But later on in the essay, The Economist notes that um, a charmed circle with great wealth becomes cut off from everybody else. For a group rewriting the rules for industry after industry, that is a special danger. The empire of the geeks draws its strength from a culture of techno-evangelism that enables entrepreneurs to rethink old systems and embrace new ones. Many denizens of the valley believe that tech is the solution to all ills and that government is just an annoyance that still lacks an algorithm. They note that regulators in America and other places are starting to look at whether Apple and other companies have 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 abused their privileges. They note that Silicon Valley dominates markets, sucks out the value contained in personal data, and erects business models that make money partly by avoiding taxes. They also note that one aspect of the isolation of the geekology is that uh, most tech companies today rely on a small group of ultra-rich investors, allowing them to, to avoid the headaches of regulatory compliance and quarterly reporting. But it also means there's little public scrutiny to ensure that funds are spent responsibly. I think this taxation issue needs to get looked at pretty hard. I mean, Amazon has done very well due to the fact that uh, it's escaped local taxation. As bookstores like Borders go belly up, you have to wonder whether having a 6 or 7% advantage in, in your pricing isn't uh, something that should be eliminated at this point. These are not startup firms struggling to get ahead. They're behemoths clobbering the competition. All right, final item for the segment. We want to take one other pot shot at uh, technology intruding in our lives in a scary way. Piece in the Sacramento Bee recently by Craig Timberg, originally in the Washington Post, notes that there's a growing number of computers in cars. In fact, a modern car can have up to 100 onboard computers, known as electronic control units, doing things as mundane as tightening seatbelts or as critical as controlling the steering wheel. These ECUs are all interconnected and communicate with each other, but some communicate with outside networks, making the system vulnerable to a remote attack. We talked on this show last year about the death of Michael Hastings, investigative journalist whose car plowed into a palm tree in Los Angeles after blowing several red lights and accelerating up to something like 90 or 100 miles an hour. There was speculation that perhaps the controls of his car had been hacked into. Well, hackers have now proved that they can do this. They can do this especially easily with the more modern cars that are so tied into the internet, but one wonders about uh, older models as well. But uh, to quote from Andy Greenberg, writing in Wired.com, I was driving 70 miles an hour on a St. Louis highway when hackers took control of my Jeep Cherokee. Cold air blasted from the vents, the radio blared at full volume, and the wiper fluid blurred the windshield. Then the hackers cut the transmission, stranding me on an overpass where I was nearly flattened by a semi. Terrifying as it was, I had volunteered for this experience, offering to be a digital crash test dummy for two security researchers who are hoping to scare the auto industry into getting serious about cyber security. Their hacking technique? Sending commands through cars' internet-connected entertainment systems potentially gives them control of thousands of vehicles. It's an automaker's nightmare, 
By the end, I was begging them to make it stop. And in that same piece by Craig Tinberg in the Post, they note that the era of digital carjacking is just beginning. Carmakers are adding web-connected features far more quickly than they are developing defenses. Experts say future attacks could involve hackers remotely disabling cars and only agreeing to retrieve them for a ransom. There's also the unnerving possibility of drive-by hacks using wired traffic infrastructure. Imagine a single infected Wi-Fi beacon on a stretch of highway delivering a virus to every passing vehicle. In an editorial in BloombergView.com, it was noted that automakers need to invest in technology that can detect hacks and provide automatic security updates to cars' softwares. To cars' software. They note that critical systems like brakes and steering should also be isolated from vulnerable systems. And these weaknesses extend well past cars. By the year 2020, some 50 billion devices are expected to be connected to the web, including baby monitors, home locks, and medical devices. Many of these products, by the way, have already been hacked. Manufacturers making the leap into the market for what's known as the Internet of Things often have no experience in digital security. Strong defenses need to be a priority, not an afterthought. We couldn't agree more. Let's go out with some rousing bumper music. The last time Mr. Merling chose this piece to, to end the segment, KDVS's general manager heard from no less than three people at a party later that evening complaining that something so commercial had aired on KDVS. It did appear ultimately, though, that all three of them managed to get through the ordeal relatively unscathed. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. And don't you like what U2 does? (laughs) 